0: Listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Today we have a really special guest that I'm super honored to have on. His name is Whitney Sewell, and he's the CEO of LifeBridge Capital. Whitney, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Sterling. My pleasure.
0: So, Whitney, can you tell us a little bit about what you have going on today in the real estate investing world?
1: today specifically <laughs> with everything that's happening yeah yeah I know it's it's obviously crazy times right now but I am thankful that we were prepared I'm happy to get into that a little bit but yeah uh, you know currently we're still looking for deals and stuff but obviously that's that's not as big of a focus at the moment we're still looking at deals but we are you know more concerned with operations you know than looking for more deals awesome
0: and for our listeners what does your portfolio look like today
1: portfolios uh we've closed on just around 60 million dollars in real estate we had about 500 doors so all multifamily, class b and c mostly c those c plus properties uh
0: anywhere from we've got a 64 unit up to you know over 200 units so. awesome awesome what an accomplishment can you take us back to the beginning and share your story with us
1: sure sure happy to do that and i appreciate the opportunity sterling very much you know i, I like to go back to 2001 in march of 2001 and i say march because you know it was september when our nation was attacked right and so you know that year and in, in march we didn't see anything like that coming kind of like this coronavirus you know we didn't see anything like that coming and i in march i joined the military and I go back to them because, you know, I had no idea that just a few years later, I'd be spending a year of my life in Iraq, you know, toting around a machine gun, praying every day that I get to go home and not everybody in my squad made it home. And so very grateful to have served, you know, I'm very grateful to obviously you know, just grateful to the Lord to allowing me to come home safely. But during that military training, and I go back to that because I, I say the military taught me to have a, a never give up mentality. And I just think that mental mindset has been so important for every almost step of my journey up to where I'm at now. And I contribute a lot to that. That training, but I came home, didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't raised around entrepreneurs or people in real estate. But I I quickly applied to be a police officer. And with Kentucky State Police, there was twelve hundred applicants for five positions, and I was blessed to have one of those. But that never give up mentality still was so important, you know, and it had to show from the way I wore my uniform to the way I responded to every dispatch. So it was just crucial every day, you know, that I had that type of mentality. But soon, you know, I realized that you know, got married, and my wife and I just passed each other in the hallway the first whole year of marriage. And and I could tell that, you know, I'm working every night, weekend, and holiday, and all the overtime that I can work as well, and barely making forty thousand dollars a year. And so I'm like, okay, this is obviously not what's best long term. And so that led me searching, right? What can I do? At that time, I was thinking just something to supplement my income, and then in came real estate. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, maybe some other books, but ultimately. Those books at that time just opened my eyes to the possibility of what can happen in real estate, you know, and so many others who have built wealth. And it wasn't just like one other person, you know, it was numerous people, many, many people who have built so much wealth in real estate. And and right then I knew, okay, if they can do it, I can do it too. And so quickly that was 2009 we purchased a couple triplexes uh, it was our worst purchase ever but we learned a lot i mean it was you know as many years ago now thankfully but but it was really a, a university for us cuz we
0: it Man. was your best purchase ever because it got you started.
1: <laughs> it did. It did get us started. That's for sure. That's for sure. But made bunches, you know, a lot of, a lot of mistakes and, and learned a lot the hard way, self-managed and all that stuff. But pretty quickly after that, I became a federal agent and that moved us to Virginia where we still live now. And so you know, moved and then kept buying small multis, single families, whatnot. But, but, you know, I I still uh, got tired of looking for more tenants and toilets, you know, and thinking about, okay, how many units is it going to take paying me 50 to say $150 of cash flow a month and, you know, to replace my income. And, you know, I I mean, it's going to take me a long time, right? (laughs) Right. A long time to scale that way and, and so much more brain damage you know, than I was willing to, to take, I think. But also, you know, during that time, a lot of people don't know this, but I was also a professional horse trainer. It was a passion I've had since I was a little boy. Grew up riding, but didn't for many years, but then got back into it and it came really easy. But I was doing clinics all over the country and, and grew a brand doing that to some extent as well. However, it hit me one night or one day that that was never going to be passive. Everybody that wanted me to train their horse, guess what? They just wanted me to do it. They didn't want anybody that worked for me to do it. They just wanted me to train their horse. And I was in the arena until midnight most nights or, you know, in weekends as well. And finally, my wife and I were at the beach one fall and, and we just decided that we just needed to cut all that off and just focus on the real estate business. And it was about the same time that I was exposed to the syndication business as well. I didn't know that syndication existed. You know, I mean, up to this point, like, I had no idea that this was even possible for me to purchase a hundred unit complex. I would have laughed at you if you had have told me that, you know, too much before that. But once I started learning about the syndication game and just the, you know, from the structure and the discipline and things i would learned from military and law enforcement, and and I love just the business aspect of it more so than me managing more units myself and looking for more tenants and doing those things. You know, I love growing and branding a professional business. And so we jumped in and we actually sold our farm. We sold everything related to horse training. So we could just completely commit to the syndication business. And we were also going through our third adoption or adopting our third child at that time. And, and it's extremely expensive. So we wanted to be able to just commit to that as well. But it was then that we just completely jumped into syndication business, I also hired another mentor at that time that was very focused on syndication. And that's when it kind of all started. But I'll, I'll stop talking for a minute so, so you can ask some questions.
0: Sure, first of all, let me summarize this real quick. So you're a military veteran, a federal agent, Adopter of three, horse trainer, and multifamily mastermind. You're an impressive individual. <laughs> they
1: should make a movie about you. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Lots of stories, obviously, to go along with all that. But, but yeah, we're we're getting there. We're thank you though.
0: So how was the transition from your own smaller properties into the syndication and the much larger properties? How did that go for you? What kind of fear was associated with that? And how did your wife feel about it? And how did y'all work that out together?
1: Great question. She's just an amazing, amazing woman and, and been an amazing, just amazing spouse, a wife the whole time we've been married, but making this happen has not been easy uh, by no means. And starting any business is not easy, that's for sure. But but it's taken, taken so many hours, you know, while working a full-time job, but also getting a business started like this. You know, it meant me being in the office till 10 p.m. or sometimes midnight most nights, you know, and weekends too, a lot of times, or I mean, just lots of long hours. And so it means missing most meals with the family for a couple of years, you know, before really any relief to that but it just took that level of dedication to be able to to make this happen to do a daily podcast and to be doing deals while still working full-time or raising capital and traveling all over the country to, to conferences and speaking and you know so she had to be on board but i tell you she's not into real estate okay however She's passionate about our why and our mission, okay? You know, so that's, that's what she's passionate about. And, and we love helping other families, you know, in the adoption process as well. And that's where, you know, I really see her light up and it's really neat to see that. But, you know, she understands that that's where we're headed. And we're on track to helping lots of families, you know, in the adoption process. And so that's why, you know, another reason why she's so supportive. But, we you know, we give all the credit to the Lord and just helping us to communicate well through this process as well. But you ask about the transition from small to large. There's so many things that had to happen there, but I go back to one of the most important things. is just my mindset taking the blinders off and just those limiting beliefs. I know all of us have, have heard that before, but it's so true. It is so true. You know, it's, it's like when I know or I believe that I can go do it. Well, you start to figure out ways to make it happen. You start meeting different people as opposed to. Just staying in that rut and thinking, well, maybe someday, but not right now. You know, and I, I was part of a small real estate group at the time and had been for a couple of years. And all, everybody in there are, are focused on single family homes mostly. Some very successful, but that's what they focused on for, you know, many, many years and they may have hundreds. And so when I started expressing, you know, wanting to go buy larger multifamily, you know, most of their responses were, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> You know, wait a minute. You know, we usually you know, we usually start with a a single family, a few of those, maybe a duplex, or maybe then you get a fourplex, and you know, and and then we kind of grow up to, you know, some bigger things, right?
0: The first time I told my wife I put an offer in on a ten million dollar apartment complex, she told me she was gonna throw up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny. That is funny and i feel like these people had good intentions they cared about me you know but i had to think about you know are they or am i taking advice from people that are where i want to be you know sure. and so they're very successful in what they're doing but but i had to increase my take the blinders off and increase my horizons a little bit and my my goals and who i'm even networking with and who i'm asking these questions from when i was getting started
0: absolutely so can you run us through maybe your worst deal, and then your best deal? You had mentioned that the uh, the triplexes that you bought caused you a good bit of headaches. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: I can. You know, when I bought those, you know, of course, you just think it's just amazing, right? Finally own your first rental property. And, and I even had an investor in that and he was paid everything. I like to say that he was paid everything he was promised. <laughs> uh, and, so, and then some. But you know the problems though were me trusting ultimately the the realtor at the time way too much trusting the seller way too much just feeling like they were there to help me you know and, and instead of helping themselves but then also the due diligence lacked a lot. Okay. You know, I hired a guy from a very reputable company, nationwide company to come in and I followed him in every nook and cranny and attic space and everywhere thinking, you know, I'm going to learn a lot, I'm, you know, all this stuff. And, and he did tell me what was working or not working. But, you know, I didn't, I wasn't thinking at the time, like, okay, well, how long Are all these heating units going to (laughs) last, you know? Like I better be planning to replace that one and that one and that, you know, like I better be looking at that. Okay. The roof, how much is that going to cost? And that's probably going to be replaced in two years. You know, I just didn't think like that. You know, I didn't, first time right but i'm still made it happen you know somehow i look back at that and i'm thinking what what was the bank thinking what you know what were (laughs) they i don't understand you know (laughs) they knew i was getting taken advantage of you know but but anyway we still made it we didn't lose any money thankfully so it, it could have been so much worse right but anyway it was a good experience and i'm thankful i'm thankful for it now but even that was a lot of stress you know obviously for my wife and i you know newly married and jumping into that and just the headaches i was self managing fixing everything myself and you know running back and forth back and forth back and forth tenants uh, you know if they didn't pay i had this one she was late every month every month and and so finally uh, you know she was paying late fee every month though too so i was like okay well maybe that's okay you know yeah. however i did sit down with her one time and laid out a whole budget for her And i'm like okay so the next two months you know you're going to be late on your payment but however in the third month you're going to be able to get ahead you know i tried to show <laughs> her how to budget all this and like I mean, you know of course that didn't work you know but you know just you can't lead a business with your heart and
0: i think you've got too big hard. of a heart to self-manage <laughs>
1: I would agree. And it's hard, right? I mean, that is hard to just really be a stickler to somebody like that. And But anyway, learned a lot. And those are a few of the downsides of that property. We did sell it, you know, not long after we moved to Virginia, but I learned a lot. So there was some value there.
0: Awesome. Can you go into a little more detail about one of your biggest home runs, probably one of the larger communities you've syndicated and just kind of run through what that looks like for our listeners?
1: Sure, a few details. I'll say a property that we closed on last June, 180 units and just for one example and one reason why this was a really good deal and we'll talk about even now like since the market's changed a little bit too why this is important, but you know the I'll say the two bedrooms for instance. They were renting for for around 925 to 950 and we were projecting taking those to around 1050. Okay. Or 1075, something like that. You know, as far as after some renovations or minor upgrades and within six months, most of those are renting for 1250. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's a, I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really big deal, you know, but even now, even now with the market changing, like it has, you know, we're still able to get closer to 1200, you know, for those same units, you know, I mean, it's still, still there, but, but here's another part by being conservative like that even if we have to lessen rents right now we're still able to pay more than our projected returns to investors because we projected so much less so even in a market like that where where we knew other operators who were projecting like four and five percent rent growth and we we wouldn't do more than three you know on the best day and we were getting a lot more than that and still are but now we're so thankful that we didn't project you know, 4 and 5% rent growth, right? But that property alone, you know, was a five-year projected hold. And if it, continues, if it continues like that, it'd be a three-year hold, you know, pretty easier. It'd double investors' money by then. We don't know what the next few months are going to hold either. But I also say, you know, we have extremely large reserve budgets and just for the rainy days like this, we closed on another 216-unit property just uh, about three weeks ago. I mean, like the week, all this just came tumbling down, right? And, you know, within that same week. But we have over a million and a half dollar reserve budget on day one and so we still sleep good at night because of things like that and it's still a home run and, and we still projected you know this property is even more two bedroom units and it's about a half a mile from the other one and then all the two bedrooms are taken at the other one but I'm just using those the two beds for an example but this one the same way we still just projected going to 10 or 1050 and knowing that we can probably get a lot more than that so anyway just a it's definitely a home run on the 180 unit and this over 200 unit property we see doing the same thing.
0: Awesome. So how do you typically structure your deals?
1: So as far as the returns and the split and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So you're normally going to see a 8% preferred return. I like to have at least an 8% preferred return. And just so everybody knows, like preferred return is not guaranteed. It doesn't mean anything's guaranteed, but it does mean you get the first 8% of any cash flow right so so or before any operators or the general partnership so then there's obviously limited partnership which is the passive investors and general partnership which is the operators and active people on the deal and so then we'll have a 70 30 split after that and then there may there may be a, a waterfall but usually not till say 17 to 20% IRR uh, say over a 5 year hold so it'll be a preferred return then 70 30 after that so, so 70% to the LPs or passive investors 30% to the general partners and then And then there may be another waterfall split, say down to 50-50 or 60-40, something like that, but at a much higher, like the last one was at,
0: I think, 20%, you know, IRR. Awesome. Can you explain what a waterfall is for our listeners that might not be familiar with it?
1: Sure. So, waterfall, so after the 8% preferred return, everything above that is split between the passive investors and the operators. So there's a split there. And 70% of everything above that is then going to those limited partners or the passive investors, okay, of everything above the 8% preferred return. So but then there'll be there'll be like a milestone or a hurdle that they'll call it. And, and some guys may have that at 13% IRR, you know, their rate of return or a 15% rate of return or a 20%. You know, there's different places that different operators will put those. But, you know, typically a much more experienced operator is going to have a lot lower hurdle, right? And so uh, or that you'll see that a lot of times. However, you know, we like to just show the alignment of interest as well with the investors and show that. And it also encourages, though, your operators to perform, okay? Because we know that, okay, when we get to that 20% IRR, what invest? I mean, what investor doesn't want 20%? But when you get to the 20%, instead of you getting 70% of everything above that, you're going to get 50% and then instead of the operators getting, you know, 30% of everything above that, they're going to get 50%. Okay? So it goes from 70-30 to 50-50 and so that's called that's the waterfall. So sometimes there'll be a couple of those, but we we, try, we prefer not to make it that complicated.
0: Got it. if you don't mind sharing cuz I guess this kind of dives into, the, you know, the personal structure of your business and if you don't want to share that then please You don't feel obligated to, but we talk a lot about the investor splits between the general partner and the limited partner. Can you tell us more about the structure of your general partnership? Typically, how many people are involved in that general partnership? How do y'all break that up? Do you mind elaborate or does it differ from deal to deal?
1: it's going to differ in every deal and every operator is going to do that differently. And that's a great question because it's it's something like every team has to figure out, right? So let's go through some of the roles on the general partnership side. Obviously, you're going to have somebody that's Maybe underwrote the deal, found the deal. People that are raising capital, people that are asset management, people that are doing due diligence. I mean, that, this you know it could be a big list, right? You know, people that are providing earnest money. You're a key principal. You know, person who has the balance sheet, meaning they have they're liquid enough to you know a larger amount or at least the size of the loan, you know, of the property. And so, you know, all those people there, and and it could just be two people, you know, that are doing all those things, okay? Or it could be six people you know, that are doing all of those things. And so then ultimately we're going to say, okay, we need this, we need this, we need this, you know, or what can my business partner and I provide if we can be the KPs, then we're not going to ask somebody else to do it or pay somebody else to do it, right? Or if we can provide the earnest money, we're not going to pay somebody else to do that, right? So, you know, we're going to do that. But if, but if we have to bring in somebody else, we are, we, or we do, of course, depending on the balance sheet requirements and the earnest money requirements and things like that to make the deal happen. Or if we have to, you know, if we have, help, I just have to have help in other areas, whatever it may be. But, then we're going to figure out, okay, what's that worth? You know, we're going to break that down and we're going to have what's the value of these tasks, you know, and try assign some kind of a amount to those or percentage or or something like that. that. You know, obviously as everybody knows that one of the biggest things you have to steer clear of is paying people to raise capital based on how much they raise, right? You know, we have to really stay away from that or even even saying it like that if you're talking about paying somebody, you know, for raising capital, you just you just can't do that. They have to be part of the general partnership team. But ultimately it's it's that simple. It's not simple, but it's it almost is that simple. And and ultimately just coming to an agreement of how much work you did compared to what everybody else has got to do, you know? And so, I mean, some, some of the main people on the team may split 50-50 or three ways or however many you know, people there are, but then you determine between yourselves, what, what is it worth to bring in this other person that can provide, you know, one of those other things that we need, like the balance sheet or earnest money or, you know, or helping in some way.
0: Awesome. So what advice do you have for our listeners that are interested in, in getting started?
1: You got to get out of your comfort zone. You have to, and it seems so like, oh, everybody says that, right? Well, what does that mean, right? So you have to, you have to get out of your comfort zone and you have to broaden your, your mind a little bit that, that these things are possible. And I would say every, everybody's situation is so different, right? However, everybody has some kind of value, probably some kind of experience, even if it's just time and just hustle that they can provide to another experienced operator. Right. And so you have to be willing to get out there and meet people and to figure out what they need, you know, so you can figure out how to add value. And like I said, maybe it is just time. Maybe it's just walking their properties once a week, picking up trash just to create the relationship. You know, I mean, I, you have to just find a way. Maybe you have a lot of capital you know, then that's an easy way to get into a deal, right? You can invest passively or you can partner on deals. You know, you find somebody that has the time and experience, you know, or vice versa. But ultimately, there, you know, there's so many things we could go into, whether you start a, a thought leadership platform or you're, maybe you're really good at property management, so you find somebody that needs your help or you have the capital or whatever, but more times than not, the mindset's what's gonna hold people back.
0: Absolutely. I uh, couldn't agree more. What are some of the things you've done to overcome the, the limiting beliefs and the, the mindset restrictions?
1: You know, that group I was talking about where I was a part of that small meetup for a long time. I'll, I'll never forget. They asked me one time to speak. It's been a few years ago now, but, you know, immediately, of course, my hands were shaking. Right. I'm like, uh, you know, yeah, I don't know if I want to do that or not. Right. But I remember I remember just knowing that I had to just commit right away. And i just had to say okay yes i'll do it okay not you know i didn't know what i was going to talk about i didn't know what i was going to say and i was nervous you know and but i knew that i just had to commit and i just had to get over that fear and so i did i just said yes i'll I'll do it you know and so it was two or three weeks later so i had plenty of time to prepare right to talk for 30 to 45 minutes it actually went pretty good most people in there probably didn't learn anything however (laughs) Uh, you know, however, it was a great experience. I learned so much. They got to ask questions afterwards, which was, you know, kind of stressful as well, you know, when you're, you know, when you're first in that environment. But I learned so much. And they've asked me to come back and speak numerous times now, you know, of course, but but you have to be willing to commit to things like that. Even Even though you don't have all the answers, you have to be willing to to say yes and figure it out kind of along the way. And I'm not saying you can do that with everything, but so many things like you can figure it out. It's not life or death. Even if it, you know, if I just bombed the whole thing, most people would never remember by now, you know? (laughs) So, but I grew a lot, you know, because of that, you know, and the next time I was much more prepared and much more willing, but so many things like that, like I said, you have to commit and be willing to just push through that fear.
0: Absolutely. So real quick, I want to hop into our radio round where we just ask a couple of questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. What is your favorite book?
1: Uh, the Bible, no doubt about it. you can going awesome. to learn everything in there. Outside of that, it's hard to pick, uh, I'll, but I'll tell you an author that I really like right now is Malcolm Gladwell. A book I'm reading right now is David and Goliath. Uh, really good but but he's got numerous I could list tons of books I've
0: read tipping point and and a few other of his yeah Uh,
1: yeah I just just love it just makes me think
0: yeah Yeah. absolutely what's your favorite quote
1: uh Winston Churchill quote uh, we make a living by what we get we make a life by what we give awesome
0: and what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working
1: It would have to be just spending time with the family but ultimately we just we love being out on you know like farm and just being together whether it's hiking or just playing kickball with the boys that's our favorite time it doesn't have to be anything we don't have to go to disneyland or anything like that you know if it's just in the backyard we cherish that time
0: awesome and this is the part that I usually have our our guests tell our listeners where they can find them but before we get to that I did want to give you a chance to share a little bit more about how Lifebridge Capital is giving back.
1: I appreciate that and I'll I'll give a little history on that, but so my wife and I, a few years ago, were listening to a pastor talk about how they had adopted and how there are over 160 million orphans in the world. We, we had no idea, but that's that's half the size almost of the U.S. population. Okay. And these kids are dying of things like, like diarrhea. I mean, that we can cure with a dollar, you know, and, and it's it's extremely sad. And most people have no idea that it can cost forty to $60,000 before you can get your child home through adoption. But quickly after here Hearing that pastor talk about that, my wife and I actually on our way home that night, we'll never forget, we we just kept asking ourselves, why would we not adopt? we had never been exposed to adoption before. We hadn't ever even talked about it. But it's like, why would we not? Not why should we, but why why would we not? Uh, And so within a week, we turned in our application to adopt from Ethiopia. And two years later to the month, our first son, Samuel, came home from Ethiopia. And then a year later, our second son, Elijah, came home. And then just a few months ago, actually, our, our daughter's adoption became final as well. And so it's an amazing journey. It's a very difficult process and extremely expensive. And so most families, when we talk to them, and a lot of people ask us questions, and we try to help families just through that process now. But when we tell them, they ask, how much is it going to cost? And we say, you know, it could be forty to 60000 their immediate response is, well, Whitney, that's, that's more than I'm making a year or, you know, there's just no way we can do that, you know. And so, you know, that's where LifeBridge Capital wants to come along beside them and say, if you'll commit that, you know, we want to be able to help you financially as well through that process. So we're in the process we, we've partnered with other churches and other nonprofits up to this point, but we're in the process of starting our own nonprofit now so we can directly help, help families that are, that are in the process or that want to adopt children as well. Oh, that's so awesome. we yeah maybe to answer your question too we we we've committed half of our profits and that's just my wife and I personally but to this nonprofit to help these families with that burden so it doesn't affect investor returns but they still know that they're playing a role
0: in this as well wow that's awesome what a what a great commitment so where can our listeners find out more about you.
1: LifeBridgeCapital.com. You can email me, Whitney at LifeBridgeCapital.com, or you can call or text 540 585 4338. Look forward to hearing from you.
0: Awesome. Whitney, it was a pleasure. I learned a ton. It's always great getting a chance to talk to you, and I know our listeners are going to love it. Talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Sterling.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Cressworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at CrestworthCapital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.